This week on the Pete the Planner Show, we answer your money questions. Here's how the show works. You email us, askpete at petetheplanner.com. I'll slow it down. Ask Pete at petetheplanner.com. And I may do a couple things. Number one, uh, I may just uh, send it straight to spam. Uh, number two, I could read it on this show and answer it. Number three, I could print it out and uh, burn it as a sign of protest. Joining me as always is Damian Dunn from his studio in Northern Indiana. Damian, welcome to your co-hosting duties. It is great to almost have this out of the way. Dear Pete and dad. Wow, that is a frequent listener to the show. Damian wow. Andrew Dunn is dad. I've been a longtime listener of your podcast and an even longer reader of your content on USA Today. My wife and I are holding down the fort at 36 years young, and together, we have a six-year-old daughter. My question is, if I should redirect my savings entirely to a taxable brokerage account to fund an early retirement? I know this is an unpopular question right now, since most are struggling to get by in this new COVID world. Honestly, though, we have always lived an extremely frugal lifestyle, and this COVID stuff feels about normal to us. So you're the one. Right now, we comfortably live on $30,000 per year. So far, I've saved $13,000 in my brokerage account. Outside of this, I have a military retirement that will kick in when I am 38. That's in the year 2022 at $25,000 per year. Thank you for your service, by the way. Health and life insurance are solid. I also have saved $8,000 for my daughter and her 529 plan. And she has full access to my MGGI bill that should cover all of her college expenses. Are you adopting? You know what I mean, Dave? Seriously. I, I bring a lot to a family. The humor, the cooking. The cooking, you know what I'm really good at? Skip bow. Have you played the card game Skip bow? Sure have. Oh, I'm really good at it, except my wife always wins. Additionally, we have together saved $93,000 in a Roth IRA through Vanguard. I also have a Roth 401k, a TSP, valued at $250,000. Are you adopting two people? We're a package deal. The Duns, we would... I'm I'm not kidding, Dame, and this sounds like I'm overpromising here. I give a heck of a foot rub. Well, I, I would be willing to do the show live from their living room every week. Hey, think about this. This guy adopts us. This guy is a veteran of the military. I'll rub a veteran's feet to say thank you. It's appropriate. It seems appropriate. Uh I feel like at this point I have retirement savings in the bag and wonder if putting additional money in these accounts might be better spent striving for early retirement through a taxable brokerage. I hope to hear your thoughts on my situation. Thanks for all your humor and advice. I'm the humor. You're the advice. I love listening to you and dad's podcast and reading your content USA Today. Cheers, Dan. Well, cheers to you, Dan. New favorite emailer. Good day, Dan. Nice job. Good day. Um, Dame... Go ahead. Answer this this man's question. He deserves the best. That's why you're going to answer it. I think he's sitting in great shape, man. I, you're going through and listening to all these things that he's got. He's got the pension. He's got a great amount of money set aside already. I don't know if I would neglect saving into the Roth at this point, at least a Roth IRA, and then maybe just pushing everything else into a taxable account. Is 
I'm sure Dan knows and, and you know, Pete, you can always get those contributions back out of the Roth IRA. So I don't see too much of a downside by going that route, at least making sure the Roth for uh, uh, for he and his spouse are taken care of on a year to year basis. And then if he wants to put everything else into a taxable account, personal preference there, that's all right. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't see too many ways this can go sideways, especially with that pension there and the good healthcare and life insurance, uh, taken care of as well. All right. So I have a practical piece of wisdom here and then I'm going to get very mystic. Okay. You ever see mystic river with Sean Penn? Anyway, so here's the pragmatic thing first. I think he should absolutely do what he's asking about doing, but that really takes on legs when that $25,000 a year military pension kicks in in two years. Because if they, it's fuzzy math, everybody, but here's what's happening. If they live on $30,000 a year and they're getting a $25,000 a year additional income from this military pension, it's almost you just set it aside. And by the time you're ready to use it again, you've just paid for another year. So every year you get one. So he'll be 38 years old. Mm -hmm. And let's say for 17 years, so he's 55 or 50, let's say he's 12 years. He sets that aside. That buys him enough time to then reach 59 and a half to have access to the rest of his money. So I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but this this could theoretically be a retire at 50 situation. I see it the same way. I wish I could argue with you, but the the key in this whole thing is going to be, can you keep your lifestyle in check for, for that time period, which There's could no be a signs that they can. I, I don't the, know. For you and me, maybe, but this guy is Captain America. He's got the discipline from his military background. He's just running a tight ship. I just imagine him on his hands and knees scrubbing the floor, a little KP. I, I think he can pull it off. I, it's clearly not a, uh, a possibility for basically anyone, but, but he has done the hard work. They have done the hard work, and they have set themselves up to make this a realistic option should they choose to pursue it. Okay, so let's challenge him a little bit here because he's done an amazing job, and I have no problem with what Dan has done. But Dan, are you feeling purposeful? Are you feeling like you're living with purpose as it relates to the financial gifts of which you have stowed and received? Uh, this is not, uh, I'm not passing the collection plate here. Uh, what I'm saying is I don't personally feel like my end goal in my financial life is just to build wealth. I, I, I just don't. Even though I do this for a living, that's not the end all be all. And, and you could say, well, yeah, Pete, but you want security for your family. In order to have that, you have to have wealth. No, I actually still don't feel that way. I want to make as big an impact with the uh, money that I have in, in both a practical way for my family, uh, still honoring stability and for my community at large. Now, not everyone feels that way. Uh, now, that being said, this all could be lip service. I I could be saying this and really be valuing wealth. Dame, do you do you have an idea of where you are on that spectrum of you know the end all be all being stacking wealth versus you know making a mark in your community? It's something that my wife and I talk about uh, occasionally. Is is how are we using the the income that we're fortunate enough to make? Uh, we want to make sure that we're taken care of for. 
uh, ourselves for for the long run. We've got these other, a couple other goals that that are um, established that that we think we're on track for. And then how can we best use the rest of that money to make the world a little better place? And it's it's something that's at the front of our minds. So are we comfortable where we're at? Eh, I don't know, but but it is something we're conscious of. Do you think? Okay, this is a loaded question. Do you think someone in Dan's situation? could be labeled as selfish and, 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 you know, that's a loaded question, but I, I'm, I'm curious. Potentially, but even if somebody does label them as that, I, I wouldn't put too much weight in. I mean, think of all the time that Dan could potentially have to donate in, a, in the very near future, not just cash, but donate his time and really make a huge difference in his community by being available and very um, affordable, if not just outright free, if he chooses to do that, to impact those that are around him, whether it's through a, a nonprofit or you know, starting something on his own to to uh, benefit those around him. So maybe, but I wouldn't put any weight in it. You know, I'll say this is he really lives one of our favorite phrases, which is make tomorrow easier. I mean, that guy... Dan walks that walk. And I encourage everyone listening right now to walk that walk. When when opportunity arrives, don't necessarily take that opportunity and use it for now. Focus on making tomorrow easier. Coming up after the break, we're going to answer a 529 question, and it's a good one. I'm Pete. The- Back on the Pete the Planner show, answering your money questions. That's just how the show works. Like, at one point in time, we're like, oh, we could have people call in. Then I was realizing one day while listening to talk radio, the callers are the worst part. And you're thinking, well, he's talking about me right now. And I'm like, yeah, I am. I'm qualified to do this. I've been doing this for 12 years as a professional broadcaster. I don't want to hear you talk on the radio. No offense. I've just now got Dame qualified to do this. I don't need to train some other person. Anyway, that seemed really rude. <laughs> Sorry, Dame. <laughs> Dear Pete, I have a 529 account that I set up when our only child was in school. Oh, do you remember when kids were in school? Wasn't that the best? <sighs> but we failed to use all the funds for her education. I'm going to call a quick timeout because I have three per half. Rarely do I ever see that phrase written or do I hear it spoken? Because that is so rare. I'll get the question occasionally that says, what do I do if I've got money left in my 520, in my child's 529 after they graduate? And I already know what they have established in it and what they're contributing to it. And I, yeah. And it just becomes, well, this is what happens. I don't think that might be an issue for you. I get that question or I used to get that question all the time. And every time I got it, Dame, I'm like you, I'm like, Okay, I'm going to answer this question because it's a legitimate question, but there's a 0% chance this becomes you. Well, for Sharon, the emailer, it is her life. At this point, it is unlikely that my daughter will pursue another advanced degree. And so far, she is single without children. I read something today. You know what? It's funny about the word read. It can either say I, it can be pronounced read or read, but it's spelled the same way. I just mispronounced it. I read something today that seemed to say we could change the beneficiary on the account to our child's spouse, assuming she does marry. Given the number of young people with student loans, I'm wondering if this is a possibility down the road. Thanks for any explanation. 
you can provide. Sharon, for, what a loving, thoughtful mom. Dave, this is a good question for a couple different reasons. Uh, number one, I, I it's a good question because of the entertainment value. Her daughter is single and, and there's no indication that she's dating. Like she could arguably put on like her Tinder profile, have some student loan money I could help you pay off based on an overfunded 529. Like this actually feels like bait, no? A little. I, I noticed that uh, Sharon was, you know, a little insistent on her her daughter maybe uh, finding somebody special to settle down with. But you know what? As, as a parent, I can understand that. I'd like a grandchild. I'll pay off the student loans of your lover. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> that seems that seems untidy. Um, so it's actually a really interesting question for a couple different reasons, Dame. The IRS actually views an in-law, the right in-law, as a family member and, and allows this sort of thing to happen, right? Yeah. So this part's been around for a while. You can change the beneficiary on a 529 to a family member. And the IRS's definition is generously fairly broad on who a family member is. Uh, daughter-in-law, son-in-law, they do qualify. So if Sharon's daughter does happen to get married, Sharon could change the beneficiary to to that person, and it would be completely above board. Yeah, uh, so that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect of it, uh, because she said just in case that, essentially, just in case that person has student loans, Sharon knows what she's talking about. Because Dame, as of this time last year, that wasn't actually a possibility. You couldn't take a 529 and use it to pay off student loans. But that has recently changed. Yeah, all new this year. Uh, something in 2020 that we can maybe uh, give a courteous smile to. Uh, the SECURE Act, in, in this case, gives us the opportunity now to use 529 accounts to pay off up to $10,000 worth of student loans. Uh, that also extends to the siblings of the beneficiary of the 529. So uh, if you've only got one 529 established at this point, maybe you've got multiple kids, but only one kid was still in college and you changed the beneficiary to the child that was still in college. You could still potentially, in theory, give some cash to each of those children to help with student loans as well. So it's a, it's a nice little benefit to people who fall into Sharon's category, who may have done a, a fantastic job saving for 529s, or, or maybe the, the child got some scholarships and offset some of the need uh, that had been uh, prepared for by the parent. So yeah, now you can do something with that 529 other than just uh, holding it over for grandkids or taking it out and paying some taxes and penalty on it. Could a parent, let, let's say I uh, procreated and I was a fop. What? Is that too graphic? I just don't like thinking about it. <laughs> Same. Well, other people don't either. But I, uh, let's say I'm a parent and I have a lot of student loan debt and then my student decides to not go to college, um, then at that point in time, could I take those that account and pay off my own student loans or do I have to do it for the beneficiary on the account? No, you can change the beneficiary and then go to it. So let's say um, you're in a very common position in this country where you're worried about paying off your own student loans while saving for your child's and lo and behold, uh, they get a scholarship 
everything's paid for and you've got a, a, a little bit set aside in a 529, you can change the beneficiary to yourself. That's not an issue. Uh, in fact, you can set up a 529 account before the child's even born and name yourself as the beneficiary and then change it in the future once that, that child uh, finally comes into the world. So no, th- there's nothing uh, that I know of that stands in the way of you using a 529 that was uh, maybe intended for a child uh, to pay off your own student loans as long as you name yourself the beneficiary. So let's walk through what the more likely scenario of the intended use of this provision is. I don't think it's more common for people to have too much 529 money um, and therefore they easily paid for college. And so then the student loan money is going to go to someone else. I don't think that's a likely scenario. I think the more likely scenario is the one I just spoke of, which is you have student loan debt yourself. You started a 529 for your kid and then they decide not to go to college. So then you can pay it off yourself, which I think is an amazing benefit and a heck of a lot more likely than, oh, I just have all this 529 money. Oh, and this person happens to have student loans. I don't think planning would actually work that way. There you go, Pete, thinking outside of the box and and how you can uh, take something that was maybe originally intended for somebody else and using it to your own benefit. Well, who do you think it was originally intended for? Do you think it was originally intended for the overfunder? Because if they were overfunding, then the person wouldn't have student loans anyway. You're right. I I hadn't put two and two together, but I I think uh, your logic holds on in this case. When we get done with this show today, I'm going to take that clip of you saying you're right and I'm going to make it my mobile phone indicator when I have a telephone call. From me. From you. I did not disclose that I uh, do paid endorsements for the 529 plan. Anytime we talk about that, I, I just like to bring it up. I, I, don't, I don't ever want to be accused of like bias. Well, we're all biased, but I don't want to be accused of something like that. So anyway, paid endorser, 529 plans. Do you think this provision makes a 529 more attractive given that it gives you an additional out uh, if you're trying to decide between, well, should I use a 529 to fund college or a Roth to fund college? It gives you a little bit of flexibility for sure, but I I don't know how frequently this provision is going to be used, if I'm perfectly honest. If if you've still got enough cash set aside to have some left over for college, I I don't know if student loans for you are going to be much of an issue. So it's, it's just a nice little benefit to tack on. It just occurred to me that Dan, our emailer in segment one, would possibly use this provision because his daughter, his six-year-old daughter, has got going to be able to use the GI Bill, and he's already got money in her 529. But then again, we're the, who has the student loans? Yeah, right. All right, Dan, I need a break, uh, primarily so they can run commercials and, and, and make money. I'm Pete the Planner. This is the show. We're going to come back and we're going to blow your mind. Back on the Pete the Planner show, Dame, last Saturday, President Donald J. Trump signed four executive orders that, well, were meant to provide relief and some financial support to people who are struggling because Congress couldn't get their together. And uh, I, I think it was a brilliant political move by the president to do that. There are a lot of questions that remain as the legality of his authority to do that, this and that. I'm not going to get into it. But here's what I do want to talk about, Dame. 
I want to talk about those four executive orders and what they actually mean. Because even when we began to study them last Saturday, when they came out, it's not that the the reality of them has changed. It's the understanding of what the language actually means, which is so complicated. And this is important, buddy, because Congress looks to be weeks away from another stimulus plan. Weeks. So this is the only lifeline for people, some people who need a lifeline. And Dame, let's begin with the $400 a week unemployment enhancement that was part one of the executive orders. So, and I don't want to put you on the spot, but this is how the show works. What is your understanding of that $400 enhancement? $400 um, unemployment benefit is going to be funded by both the federal government and the state as it's written. $300 would come from uh, the federal government. $100, 25% of the benefit would be paid by the state, which is uh, difficult because states are in a really, really tough spot right now because of reduced revenues throughout uh, the beginning part of this year. And frankly, most states probably don't have it to, to pay. So I don't know how that gets pulled off. I don't know if the federal government would require states to borrow to, to make those payments. I don't know if they would allow them to um, shrug their shoulders and say, I, we just can't do it. I, I'm not sure how the logistics of all that's going to work out, or even if the $400 is going to hold up to, and actually be be paid out. So I don't know how this is going to shake out, but I, I applaud the effort uh, at, at this point. I mean, I, I think uh, the Democrats were asking for the, the 600 to be continued. The Republicans were around two and said, OK, we're going to shrewdly negotiate this and meet right in the middle at $400. And we're going to ask the states to kick in a little bit, too. So is it as great as it was prior? Nope. But it's better than nothing. So stay tuned to see how that's all going to shake out. Yeah, so there's some additional elements to cover here, and you actually you nailed it. Uh, not surprisingly, uh, first off, what I'm about to say, I'm not levying criticism. I, I think this is a very difficult attempt to solve a very big problem, a very complicated problem, and this is going to be filed under the law of unintended consequences because initially, when the $300 per week was promised as an unemployment benefit, as long as the state contributed $100 to activate the $300, Dave, that's the way it was written. In order to get the $300, the state had to kick in $100. And to your point, people, states, can't afford to do that. So theoretically, that would take all the people in that state who otherwise would qualify for this benefit and immediately disqualify them for the benefit because this state can't afford to make the payment. Now, what's really interesting about this is, and this, th this is a little bit more theory than it is fact, where the Democrats and Republicans are so far apart on this stimulus bill, a lot of it relates to aid for state and local governments. So the Republicans are saying, look, we, we don't want to get involved with that. And, and, and so it's, it doesn't stop it there. With this particular executive order, not only does it not help them, it forces the state's hand to contribute $100. So that's changed, 
the Department of Labor issued a letter stating that it is an option. The $100 is now an option, not a requirement. However, here's the bigger issue with this particular executive order. Do you remember when the gig economy workers had to wait for months until unemployment systems could support their need for money? Yeah. Well, because this is another different type of unemployment benefit, the real fear now is it's going to take states six weeks or so to figure this thing out, to set the system up. And by the way, the entire program, this executive order caps at $44 billion, which is enough to cover five or six weeks of people getting this benefit. So Dame, here's what's going to happen if this isn't challenged by a court or Congress doesn't figure out what they're doing. This is what will happen. By the time that this is ready to roll out, it will be a one lump sum check back pay for the previous five to six weeks, and then it's completely over. I'm not suggesting in bringing this up that the president did anything wrong, because I don't think that's the point of the story here. I think the point of the story is when you take big sweeping programs and you add some level of innovation, whether with, with good intent or bad, the system has to be able to handle the influx of cash. And in this case, it can't. And so I'm telling you that the entire executive order, while maybe well-intended, is completely pointless in practice. We've talked about it the first time around uh, when people were having a delay in, in some of their uh, stimulus checks that were coming out. Uh, we said that you can't expect the federal government to be nimble in a situation like this. This is just not how they're constructed. It's the same thing here. So even though the um, the the motive been, may have been fantastic, we aren't left with a mechanism that's going to be able to pull it off, just as you said, in a, a, an appropriate amount of time. So I, honestly, the best thing that can happen is Congress gets there together and writes a bill, and we can use something that's already been established to continue to assist those that desperately need the help. Sadly, another one of the executive orders, which was a moratorium on evictions, also is not what it seemed like on Saturday. Uh, instead of a moratorium on evictions, which would stop people from evicting people who can't pay rent, which could be up to 40% of U.S. renters. That You and I live in a world of statistics. I, actually, we, we love to roll around in statistics. We love them so much. This is one of the scarier ones I've ever seen. 40% of U.S. renters are at the risk of eviction in the next several months. The, the executive order actually isn't a moratorium. It's talked about as a moratorium, but here's what it does. It says, it, in, it investigates whether it's necessary to stop evictions as a way to help COVID-19 from spreading, presumably from people looking for houses across state lines or sharing houses with others moving into shelters. The executive order also identifies ways to give renters and landlords financial assistance. It also is encouraging and provide and provides assistance to various organizations or individuals to help guard against evictions and foreclosures, though it isn't clear if this includes financial help. And finally, it reviews existing authorities and resources, which could include government programs. I bring this up 
because it actually is not an eviction moratorium. It's like when something is sent to study committee and state and local governments, oh, let's just send it to committee. That's what it essentially does. And so, look, last Saturday, I, I got to admit, I, it is what it is. I was like, you know what? This is brilliant. All four of these executive orders make a lot of sense to me. Not that they're perfect, but look, Congress wasn't doing anything. It, it was it was a smart move politically as far as the election goes. And I thought it it was a real effort to get things done. But after a week and a look at them, they look a lot. They look pretty empty, man. I don't like living in a world where it's hard to do the right thing. That's a really good point. Again, I don't know the president's intention of listing executive orders. Was it a power grab? I don't know. And I don't know if I really care. And I would also argue that people who are really struggling financially right now use that $400 a week as an additional lifeline. I don't think they really care about his intention either. So let's take a break. Coming up after the break, biggest waste of money of the week and the news. I'm Pete the Planner. This week's biggest waste of money of the week right here on the Pete the Planner show is, well, my friends, it is a lockpick gun. Yes, very few of us know how to reliably pick a lock. First developed to let law enforcement enter locked areas (laughs) without a warrant. This lockpick gun improves on the original while keeping things as simple as possible, including uh, I lost my place reading. Uh, <laughs> that's fun. That's fun when you're reading copy. Uh, using the included picking needles, you just insert the tool into the lock and pull the trigger to unlock. It has an adjusting screw to allow for control of trigger sensitivity, slip-resistant grips for comfort, and also comes with a tension tool and instructions. Those Joining us on our Friday live stream, or seeing this image on the screen right now, Dame, you're getting your first look at this lockpick gun. What are your thoughts, my friend? I have questions. Can I can I ask you questions? You can ask me whatever you want. This is our friendship. D- do I need a background check for this gun? That's a great question, and the fact that I don't know the answer to it makes me a little bit nervous, if I can be honest. Okay. Uh, is this a a fully automatic gun? Oh, I see where you're going with this. I, I thought you were going, oh, well, you probably should need a background check on this, but where you're going is a gun rights situation. I didn't I didn't see that coming. I was going to ask it then if it had the shoulder thing that goes up, which is a callback to a congresswoman, but that's okay. <laughs> Levi on Facebook uh, just said, uh, would it fit under the fake rock in front of my porch? <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> well played, sir. Um, you know, here's the thing. Uh, Dame, I get uh, addicted to various YouTube channels, just random, weird stuff. I I think I've told you recently, one of my addictions is a guy who owns a laundromat in near Mm -hmm. Columbus, Ohio, and I love to watch that. Well, a previous one was a channel called The Lock Picking Lawyer, where he would pick locks with manual tools, not this automated gun. And he would basically show these lock companies how inadequate they were. Um, and I think that's a really interesting hobby. Uh, but for $50, you have the uh, automated ability to basically pick any lock. I don't think they should sell this. 
there's still got to be a lot of skill that goes into this. I mean, they they can say it, but if you've watched lock picking, there's there's some talent here. It just can't be as easy as finding the right attachment, putting it in the the keyhole and pulling the trigger and opening the door, can it? I've watched a lot of lock picking and I think you need an artist's touch. Do you remember when you were a kid and you first heard the term or the concept of a skeleton key and you were pretty convinced that that key opened every door, but then you learned it was just a metal stick that you could only open doors with at your own home? Yeah, that was really disappointing. Yeah. Yeah. It felt like you were going to have all this power. If you could just find one of these keys, you could go to the, the, the gas station and get a pack of baseball cards in the middle of the night. Alas, it is not Alas. so. Dame, Americans keep buying stuff. Despite the pandemic, retail sales rise for a third straight month. Retail sales rose 1.2% in July versus... You ever know anyone that pronounces July, July? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. A lot of that in the country. Uh, versus the Dow Jones estimate of 2.3%. This is excluding autos. Sales actually beat the consensus, rising 1.9% versus the forecast of 1.2%. Predictably, electronics and appliances led gains, while bars and restaurants also were up. You know, I try not to be critical of how people spend their money, which is a unique thing to admit to doing when you're in our business, but I don't. When I see pieces of news like this, I just sort of nod my head and I go, yep, that's that's pretty much why we're uh, in in this situation financially. I don't even mean with COVID. I mean, this is why 90% of American households lack financial stability is because in the midst of the hardest economic time in 100 years, consumer spending is up. Why? Did you see the article that juxtaposes with this really nicely about debt being paid down during COVID too? I did see that. that you, I think you put that on the channel a couple of weeks ago. I think um, so. th- that was a that was uh, a pleasant surprise. But how can both be possible? How how can we both increase consumer spending and decrease consumer spending because you're eliminating your financial past? How is that possible? You're eating a lot of peanut butter and jelly and ramen. I'm guessing that's that's how you make it. You go spend it on stuff that you want and pay down some other debt and live on hopes and dreams. You were really on a run there, and then you ended with hopes and dreams. Do you ever see Vanilla Sky, the movie with Tom Cruise? I never did. I want to mention a couple of things. Number one, an old high school girlfriend of mine was in that movie, and I just really? wanted to bring that. Yeah. Well, you dated a movie star. Well, we'll talk off the air. Second, um, I love that movie until the final scene. Spoiler alert. It's one of those movies where at the end they just go, oh, it was all a dream. And it's like, are you serious? I just invested two hours into this movie and you're like, none of it was real. It's all a dream. And it's like, what? That's not fair. I got news for you, Pete. Yeah. Most movies aren't real. Oh, except documentary. REI plans sale of unused eight acre headquarters campus as the retailer embraces remote work. I mean, I hope our landlord's not listening right now, Dame, but you and I and our entire team, big, luscious entire team have been uh, working from remotely since March. I kind of love it. I kind of love it. I'm going to be honest. 
I think a lot of companies are coming face to face with the fact that they may not need nearly as as many square feet as they thought they did. I mean, sure, it's nice to be able to have everybody under one roof, but if you can trim tens, hundreds, millions of dollars off of your annual overhead, that's something you got to consider. Yeah. You know, look, we're not going to be in our office through the end of the year. We have not been in there since March. So that means we've paid nine months rent. I'm not complaining. I honestly am not complaining because I'm glad we're able to. And I, it's the right thing to do. I'm not asking for rent relief. I mean, I did ask for rent relief. We didn't get it, but I'm gladly paying for nine months. But Dame, in the light of what REI is doing, I think you're going to see a lot of really big businesses make this same decision. We're in a five-year lease that started in July of 19. So we're one year in. We have four years left. I can tell you this. If our lease was expiring right now, like if it was expiring, like literally right now, we would be a work-from-home organization, guaranteed. Well, there was also, I think, an article that you posted. Uh, this isn't just a, a Northwest a part of America thing there. It was, uh, it was from the times of the wall street journal where downtown New York is possibly changed for a decade or more because businesses and people are just fleeing, uh, the astronomical rents that are, are being charged down there. They don't see the value at this point or, or in the coming years. So it's, uh, it's going to be a different landscape real, real soon. You know, I posted that article on our our Slack channel because it interested me. But Dame, and you know this about me, my favorite place to visit and to vacation is New York City. It's, it's like my favorite place on the planet other than being outdoors. And it made me so sad. It made me so sad that all of the gains and the culture and everything that New York has to offer are washed away at this point and will be for decades, not to mention smaller metropolitan areas like downtown Indianapolis, who a friend of mine was there just this week. And he said, man, I I hate to type this in our text chain, but it is a ghost town. It's like an apocalypse down there. And I feel like a lot of metropolitan areas are going through that same thing. It's it's unthinkable. If you would have asked me a year ago if this would would happen, I just it seems so unlikely. Oh, Dame. Now I'm sad. I'm going to go have to take some St. John's wort or something like that. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. Hey, Dame, thanks for being on the show this week. I know it's part of your job and all, but I mean, you could you could make up an excuse and say you couldn't be on the show, but I appreciate you doing it. Thanks, Pete. I enjoyed being here. And thank you all for listening to the Pete the Planner Show. You can catch back episodes at uh, PeteThePlanner.com or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sending you good vibes because good vibes are all that's in the budget. I'm Pete the Planner, and this is the show.